Welcome, I'm Naima Tenenbaum, and this is the Institution to Inspiration Education Show. Today, I interviewed Dr. Tamar Andrews, who is an early childhood education professor, consultant, speaker, and the director of a preschool. She understands what's going on and has a lot to contribute to the conversation. you first a little bit of background about yourself and how I've seen comments and you know from your posts on LinkedIn it seems like you really have your finger on the pulse of like what's happening in the field of education specifically with the teacher shortage which is what I focus on. I am the director of the BA master's and doctoral program in early childhood at the American Jewish University. Mm -hmm. I've been a professor I'm only 20. I've been a professor (laughs) for about 30 years. And I'm I'm the director of one of the largest Jewish preschools in Los Angeles. I've been there for about 20 years. I'm also a California mentor director, and um, I speak all over the world on early childhood topics. That's incredible. Wow. So were there any specific topics that you focus on? Um, some of the ones that people ask me for the most are anything related to administration, how to run a preschool. I just got back from Greece last week where they asked me to speak. Uh, I do a lot on challenging behaviors. I think we're very quick to diagnose challenging behaviors with a pathology in this country. And um, we don't look enough at our own practices to see if maybe that's exacerbating the problem. And I'm also uh, really big on on STEM. So I do a thing on JSTEM for Jewish schools and STEM in early childhood for other folks. Future-proofing our kids. That's really incredible. Wow. I And I really like what you're saying about the diagnosing. But if I was in a really bad workplace, would the answer be to medicate me so that I stop disturbing or being depressed about being in the workplace? It's obviously not the answer. And it's so funny how it's so easily the first go-to answer for kids. Yep. Right? Yep. Exactly. That's exactly what I talk about. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, that's that's um I saw your video, that first video that I saw about when a kid is ready to read. Um, oh yeah, you know, those, I that was so cool because my daughter's like in that stage right now. It resonated with you. You got oh, it. Yeah. yeah. Totally, totally. It was so cool. And I, I actually told some people about it. It was it was really cool. Um, so when I when I met I'm gonna stop you for a second. That's yeah. the problem. If I were to tell you I want you to become a football player. Would I sit you in circle time for the next 10 years of your life talking about how to be a football player? Or would I actually put you on the field playing football? Exactly. We're just raising a ton of receptionists, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the STEM movement kind of started, um, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago, 15 years ago in, in schools that I've seen. Like when I was in school, it was all just sit at your desk and write about science. Yes. Um, and I think that's a tremendous improvement. Robotics and computers and all that new development. And I think that's well, think the first step in the right direction. 20 years ago, the jobs that exist today, did they exist 20 years ago? 
no, mine didn't. <laughs> okay. And so 20 years from now, when these little kids are adults, we don't know what jobs will be available to them. And so we have to future-proof them. Yeah, a thousand percent. It's very true. That's uh, very true. Yeah. So you also seem to really understand the whole, the teacher shortage, what's, you know, what's causing it, the tensions behind it that have led to this. So I want to hear a little bit about what you have to say about that and how you came to see what the problem is. So it's a three-pronged problem. Um, <clears throat> the first problem is that we are we are keeping teachers at a rate that is below what a living wage can actually be. But we're actually not just doing it to them. It is being done to themselves. And the reason for that is because we want to be called a profession and yet we don't ex we don't expect ourselves to have the educational background of a profession. So for example, I'm in California, in order to be a preschool teacher left alone in, with the care of, you know, 18 kids, all you need are 12 units in early childhood. You could get a C in those units. Um, you don't have to be very good at it, but as long as you are living, breathing, and on paper, you have those 12 units, you can be left alone with children. And then you demand to get 25 or 35 or $45 an hour, which most people have to earn after they've got at least an AA or a BA degree. So the problem is that schools aren't paying enough, teachers aren't getting the education that they need. And the third problem is the government or the legislative body that oversees early childhood regulations doesn't demand it as well. And I get that it's a problem because <clears throat> the biggest problem is that we have to pay for childcare. We don't necessarily have to pay for education from K and up. And the reason why preschool, early childhood, is not part of the compulsory education or paid for by the government is because it harkens back to, you know, decades ago to a very um, male dominated field or world where we thought women should stay home with their children. And so if women should and could stay home with their children, there's no reason for the government to pay for childcare. But we now see that that's actually not true. Most households can't even make it unless both parents are working full-time? What about a household where there's only one full-time or one parent, or they work as a childcare worker and they don't make enough money to afford childcare? And so if we were to get all of these things, three elements in cahoots, or even two of the elements, it would force the hand of the governments to pass legislation more like Build Back Better and all of these things that are happening in individual states so that childcare would actually be paid for. We see it slowly happening. So now we have in many states, we have the pre-K or the TK being covered um, by you know taxpayer dollars, but it needs to be that it's going to go down to, I would say, you know, six weeks or at least six months. And I think that the the return on investment, the ROI on this would be enormous because you'd have less time lost by people in the workforce. You'd have more people able to actually enter the workforce. Therefore, you know, you have more taxes coming in on that end and then more taxes coming in on the spend that happens as a result of them being in the workforce and making money. So you've got to look at the long picture instead of the short term loss that you get by spending money on early childhood. That's well, yeah, I, I completely agree. That's a very comprehensive answer. Um, so 
tackling the first one about teachers not being paid enough. And I want to combine that with teachers not seeing themselves as professionals because it really goes together. Um, I definitely see that a thousand percent. And I, for one, saw myself as a professional teacher and I got my master's and getting my doctorate. I'm very, very into this. But I do see a lot of people just, they, they see themselves as just teachers um, or where they make a certain amount and they don't even understand that they can make more. Like it isn't even a thought. Like for me, I was working part-time and making a really small amount of money. And one day my husband turns to me and he's like, you know what? You don't have to be making that amount of money for the rest of your life. And it was like, oh, you mean like I can make more money than this? And it was like a whole, it was like an idea. It was like a whole different idea. Another issue that I have found with immediate compensation is that schools have become very top heavy. So for example, I have a school, 350 kids. In most schools that size, you have about eight or nine people in the administrative offices. And I, and I have three. Wow. There's myself, my co-director, and the office manager. And what I found was that when COVID hit and one of my office workers left, she just couldn't handle it. She didn't want to work anymore. Um, at the exact same time, I invested very little money in an app that really helps run the school. It's called Playground. And it runs my school. And then I started saying, wow, I could actually eliminate one more position if the app would do X, Y, and Z. So I had one person whose only job was to manage all paperwork for kids. Now the app does it for me. So we have now shrunk down to three people in the office. And as a result of that, I have much more money to put back into my teacher salary line. That's an amazing point. And if instead that money was taken and used to promote teachers, to help. Also, teachers could be involved in these things. I find a lot of the time you're either a teacher or you're in administration. But the thing is, and this, this is one of the problems that I saw, is there was a glass ceiling. I could be a teacher or a teacher or a teacher. And in 30 years, I can hope to be a teacher. And I was like, no, that's not okay. I need to be growing. I felt like I was going through fourth grade. I mean, because I was many, many, many times. I'm like, okay, I, I, I did it. I got it. Like, can I have something more challenging? Um, so that's definitely a very great way to kind of kill two birds with one stone. You get your money back because you're not, you're, you're streamlining things and you're making the processes better. And then you're also giving your teachers the opportunity. So you're giving yourself the opportunity to hold on to the best teachers. Yes. The best teachers are the ones who want to grow, are the ones who want to advance, are the ones who want to stay. Yes. So yes. It's, it's there's, a, uh, there's a great school. When I was doing my doctorate a long time ago, one of my professors uh, opened our, our class's eyes to it. It's called uh, TEP Chartered, the Equity Project Charter School in New York, tepcharter.org, if you want to look it up. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if it's still there, the, the website, but if you went to like one of the pages on the website and it was recruiting for teachers, it said that starting salary for a teacher is 125000 a year. And if you stay the year, you get a $25,000 bonus. Sign wow. <laughs> exactly. And so what's the caveat? The caveat is that exactly, they have just a couple people in the administrative office like I do now, because that's where I learned how to do this. 
And the teachers, when they're done teaching or if they have, you know, if they're teaching third grade math and then they've got a break for a couple hours, then they're going to teach fifth grade math. They go into the office and they do administrative tasks so that everybody has a hand in the success of the school, but everybody's making really great money. And so I fashioned my school the same way. So we have five levels of, of employees at our school. And if you are, um, if you have the education and the experience and you qualify, then you uh, are a level four or level five, which is part of the administrative team. So you have a teaching assignment and then you also have administrative duties and you're paid a handsome salary. And so, as I had said to you earlier, there isn't a teacher shortage. There's a shortage of compensation because if you pay enough, you'll get anybody to fill a job. For sure. Right. Yeah. 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 That's 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 really incredible and mind blowing because I've actually never heard of that before. That specific solution of having I'm meaning like obviously as an idea, but I haven't ever heard of a school that is doing it. Um having wow teachers who can actually make a livable salary it's incredible and for the amount of work and like i know that the amount of talent that a teacher who teaches 39 year olds like the amount of talent that's needed to do that effectively is worth so much and um that's really wow that's that's really something here let me ask um, you this yeah most people can't remember the waiter at a restaurant they've been to quite a few times but they will remember their first grade teacher sure. or their second grade teacher those people leave a very lasting indelible mark they change the structure of your brain they're literally architects of the brain how much is it worth for you to hire someone to be the architect of a child's brain I think we really have to be asking those questions. And I think we have to hold, especially in private schools, we have to hold the proverbial principal's feet to the fire because they do make an enormous amount more than their teachers. They are balancing a budget in many cases to fill the pockets of the people who work in the office rather than the teachers who are doing the actual legwork. Yeah. And so um, we have to make it more equitable and it's so easy to do if you if you use any of these tools that you have at your disposal now to eliminate some of those really redundant positions in the offices. Yeah. Well, when you say office, do you say is that like administrative assistant, or do you mean someone in administration, like a curriculum coordinator, that sort of that? that. Well, why do you need? Let's say, okay, take a curriculum coordinator. Why would you need someone like that if you have teachers who really understand curriculum, who have master's degrees, some even have doctoral degrees, right. and would love to be making more money? They would probably work till eight, nine o'clock at night to earn that money. Oh, yeah. So you could even share it between two or three teachers, divide them up into age categories, right, for different levels of the school, and give these teachers a reason to feel ownership of a school rather than being a renter. An owner will stick it out and make it work. A renter will leave when they find something better. Definitely. And back to your point, I just want to mention that I can rem I remember by name just about every teacher I ever had since senior nursery. No, actually, I remember my my two year old teacher as well. She's now my daughter's two year old teacher. Oh wow! Um, and I I actually I told her I remember how 
I remember so many things how she took care of me and I actually wrote her a whole nice note or whatever. But the thing is, people don't realize how these people are so vital and they're not just, you know, simple sales associates. They're not people who are just copying things. What teachers are is, if if you really think about it, it is such a powerful job. And that's what keeps teachers in the field because it's so powerful. You can't, you don't have that kind of fulfillment in other jobs. It's very rare to find it. Um, and, I'll give you one more problem. Yeah. One more uh, from the administrative point. Mm-hmm. In most professions, you have to pass some kind of a test in order to be hired. So engineers have to pass an engineering test. Lawyers, I'm sure you have to you know, understand the law. Doctors, for sure, go through a rigorous amount of training. In many schools, they find a teacher and they throw them into a class and they hire them without seeing if they actually know the craft. And what I mean by that is understanding key concepts like zone of proximal development, understanding different sequences of development, understanding stages of writing, stages of math, and um, giving them a few opportunities to demonstrate mastery Because then what happens is if you throw somebody into the mix that is really not qualified, they might be qualified on paper, but that doesn't mean that they actually have mastery of the subject matter. You then infuriate all the people that work alongside that person because they have to cover for their deficiencies. And so we have to do a better job um, the way some of the other countries do. You know, the um, Life satisfaction in countries like Norway, Denmark, Switzerland, Iceland are at the top of the scale for all countries in the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that delineates them, separates them from the rest of the world is that they only hire the best people to be their children's teachers. They consider it an honor to be a teacher. And here we are taking bus drivers and anybody that has bare minimum qualifications without any kind of um, follow through to see if they have that mastery and the ability for group control. There's, you know, a whole bunch of skills that go into teaching and just throw them into a classroom. Um, yeah, I could go on and on. I'm sorry. No, don't, don't be sorry. No, I I want you to go on and on. It's frightening. It's absolutely frightening when you think of who your kids are, who, who's teaching your kids. I mean, really, when you think about it for more than a second, what it means to have your kid vulnerable to, in, at best, ineffective teacher, um, at worst, dangerous person. And it really happens. It's very, very scary. Now, in terms of preparing teachers and knowing that they, I know a lot of schools do um, model lessons. And I personally don't believe that's enough especially if a teacher doesn't have a classroom management plan already, if the teacher doesn't already know the content. It's funny how when schools hire teachers and say, okay, now you're going to teach seventh grade math. Well, does that person even know seventh grade math, that grade level and that specific? A lot of the time you see a mismatch between a teacher's skill and what they've been assigned to teach. 
And then they're teaching content, but they're learning at the same time. And that's not good for anyone. Yeah. And not only that, but don't forget a model lesson is something that I could practice for a few hours and master that model lesson. Teaching though is not a sprint, it's a marathon. So you've got to have a way of uh, establishing whether or not that person's going to last the entire marathon. That's for sure. Yes, that's definitely true. What do you think are some good ways to make sure that teachers are qualified to begin with, that they're prepared to even be applying as a teacher? Um, well, number one, uh, you have to check references. Number two, the trial period should be at least a week or two. So that it's not a model lesson. It's, okay, I have a teacher who's gonna be out for a week. I will pay you to sub for the week and watch them over the course of a week, but actually watch them. Don't just throw them in the class, then walk out. There should be a checklist, you know, a list of questions, things that you are looking for, group control. Um, you know, what happens if this person always calls on the girls and not on the boys in class? Or do they notice everybody who's got their hand up? Do they acknowledge everybody? Um, what happens if there's a situation? How do they handle a discipline situation? Can they handle it appropriately? Do they get back group control? Yeah, it's also, it's frightening for me to see how a lot of these teachers leave their, you know, bachelor's programs or what, whatever it is, their certificate programs without having basic classroom management skills. Because if there are not basic classroom management skills, the classroom is not a safe place. Um, when I taught EDA 101, I, I wouldn't say I scrapped the whole textbook, but I was like, guys, it really doesn't matter if you're going to have a great lesson plan if you don't have classroom management. And yes, I did go over those lesson plans, but that was not the focus. The focus was, what are you going to do when that kid says something obnoxious and you're standing like a deer in the headlights? What do you do? And the first day, the first week, whatever it is, is so critical for these teachers. And we have a teacher shortage. And then when we actually get a teacher, we don't take care of them. We just feed them to the sharks. That's not a good way to hold on to teachers. Yeah, we also put our teachers into silos. I think one of the things that's going to need to happen, but I don't have the uh, koach to do it. We need to scrap the whole educational system because right now it is still the buffet that it was in the 1800s. And <laughs> if you made learning more, um, appropriate for the teachers, more exciting for the teachers, more exciting for the kids, where you instilled a sense of curiosity, collaboration, communication. Um, in, in Hebrew, we say chavruta. So the teachers need to do this as well so that the children aren't going with a tray and just going from, uh, you know, like, you know, English is one subject and math is completely unrelated. And then if they have any other subjects that are completely unrelated, Schools should put together some, even a very loosely, you know, tied together shell where this month we're all talking about X. And then in English and math, everything is kind of connected so that the students actually feel a sense of, oh, I can cover part of this in my English class. And then when I get to my math class, I can do it this way. Because if you, again, the jobs that are going to be available in the future and even the ones that are more available now 
really require a different skill set than they did 30 years ago. They are very interdisciplinary. And as a result of that, putting them through a school where things are not interdisciplinary does not actually help prepare them as well as a school that is. Um, I was consulting to a school over the summer and it was <laughs> fascinating. Um, the kids had to, in the second, third and fourth grade, they were learning about where shoes came from. Mm -hmm. How do people make shoes? So in math, they had to figure out how measurements are made. Like, are the measurements just straight in a line? What about a cross? What about the heel? I mean, how do you measure the material that you need? Everything was just measurements. And then in um, science class, it was, how do you source the materials? Where do they come from? What kinds of materials would make good shoes? Can we stretch, you know, can we test elasticity and things like that? And then, um, they had extracurricular was drawing, like designing the shoe. And then they actually got a shoemaker to make each child's pair of shoes as a donation that the kids had created. The excitement, the the collaboration, the curiosity. I mean, these kids were enthused to, to keep going to school. They did this for almost everything. They found a way to tie things together and it was it was magnificent. Yeah, you know, there's something actually very unique about what you're saying. I find that kids love preschool. My kids are happy to go every day. And if I have to pick them up for like a dentist appointment or whatever, it's like, mommy, I want to go back. And then they get to grade school and it's like a light switch turns off. You know why? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I yeah. Because humans were not built. Our body structure was not built to sit on our on our behinds mm -hmm. for that many hours a day. Okay. And most teachers are the ones standing and moving around and the kids are expected to sit down and be quiet. We love we love the learning that takes place when we're moving and grooving and working independent of the teacher. That's for sure. And that is another thing that needs a lot of training. That's not something that someone either with very minimal training or just who's just a beginner can do on their own. That well, there's a movement. Have you heard of UDL? Uh -huh. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that is the movement that is really starting to take hold in many schools around the country. Yeah. Um, a lot of parochial, a lot of Christian schools are using it. Um, I don't know, you know, the public schools, it's going to be hard because the unions are going to resist any kind of change unless they're paid for it. Yeah. Um, but universal design um, is really, I think, the way that we're going to have to move forward. That's for sure. Definitely. Um, I find that a big problem that I'm coming up against, I do work with a lot of Jewish schools, and I find that a lot of them are very unestablished. Um, they're pretty new when a Jewish community grows or there's a new Jewish community, they need a school. And it's kind of a reaction of, okay, we have to get something together. And they <laughs> aren't looking at it from a perspective of how can we craft the best? They're just looking at like, we need to like stuff the kids in a room and keep them busy. So what I'm doing is kind of taking them from that stage to what you're saying which is where your kids can you know they're going to be getting up 
they're going to be excited to go back to school. They want to go do that. They want to go learn. Um, and there are so many ways that can be taught and can be learned for these educators who are in these schools. It doesn't need to be like, I, I think when we say we talk about how learning should be, a lot of teachers say like, well, forget it. I mean, it, it's not Disney World in my school. Like I can't make, you know, slides coming down and then like, yeah, they don't realize or, you know, it's very important to realize that exciting learning doesn't have to be an amusement park. It can just be doing a super exciting novel or doing instead of testing the students on the cell structure, having them make it out of candy. There's things that are on the simpler side, but they're still innovative and they're still creative and the kids still get what they need. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to share with you. I also work with a lot of Jewish schools, especially the ones that are very Orthodox. Yeah. And um, what I find that's a predominant problem is that many of the women who teach in the schools, they're lovely, lovely, lovely women, but you know, like the four sons, like they don't even know what they don't know. And they've gone to seminaries. They've also gotten their degrees through programs that offered very easy ways to get degrees. Yeah. And as a result, they don't have the technical knowledge that they need. So when these rabbis come and say, you know, I'm opening up a new community or I'm opening up a new school, their intention is really to get more members into the community. And the vessel by which to do that is the school. They will hire women who have gone through programs thinking that was all I needed, not knowing what else was out there. And then when they are faced with modern problems or kids whose parents are you know, expecting more than what the uh, Orthodox schools are currently offering, they have a problem. The other issue is that for the very Orthodox, they don't also know, sorry, my phone is going off. They don't know what is um, available out there in terms of assistance to the school. Because if we go outside of the Jewish community for assistance, we might actually lose those families. And so I'm talking about things like children who have challenging behaviors and might need more structured support. Um, they don't even know how to identify those. What? There are some schools that have stepped up to it. Like in my community, we have Jewels, which is a inclusive school there's a combined preschool and therapy clinic um it's a jewish have, yeah yeah oh, nice. but, but it's not enough meaning like you know the need is so great and we always yes. more yeah 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 <sighs> and then the other problem too is space you know you can't compete with the space that some of these much more these larger more established or public schools have and so parents expect to get the same thing they're paying out, you know, a lot of money for these private schools. Um, and again, it's, I think you hit something on the head, which is making learning exciting. Um, you have to really understand that school shouldn't be fun. School should be challenging. Humans love a challenge. So like you said, building something, putting your hands to it, making something, using your brain, not just regurgitating facts and figures. 
Um, you know, our schools tend to view kids as encyclopedias. What we've got to do is, again, we, we have to structure our schools or expect different things from teachers that when we interview them, we are looking for those things that we expect. For sure. Yeah. And then there's another piece, which is the leadership. We're very quick to send teachers to professional development, but I find that leaders are, I think it's coming from a good place. They're like teachers first, teachers first, and they, they don't want to necessarily spend the professional development money on themselves. Um, they want to spend it on their teachers, but you got to put your oxygen on first. And if we don't have a leader, then yeah. it's not going to matter much what the teachers are learning. If I had two schools, one school was filled with completely novice teachers who just don't know anything yet, but a great leader versus a school with a weak leader and very experienced teachers, I can assure you that over time, the school with the better leader and the novice teachers will do better and will be better at educating the kids. It's without a question. The boat doesn't go anywhere if the captain doesn't know where it's going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And something that's very interesting that I've seen is that all of these solutions seem very obvious to people who aren't in, who aren't inside the forest. It's the people who are in there that it, it, it gets so complicated and it gets so lost in it because there are so many details and there's so much coming at them. So it's hard separating the problems with parents from the problems with the board and the problems with the teachers and the problems with the kids. And it's very hard to separate all that. And it gets very overwhelming and all kind of just mishmashes together. So, you know, part of what I do is I help them. I actually don't see parents as a problem. My job is to be an educator. My job is to educate parents. If you educate them well, parents actually become your allies. Parents shouldn't be a problem. It's yeah. an unhealthy thing if they are a problem, but yeah. there are schools that haven't communicated properly with the parents. And on a previous episode, I discussed how there's a communication crisis when you are having problems with the parents. 99% of the parents or some really high percentage up there of parents are really helpful and will truly be allies. It's the school's responsibility to make that a possibility. Yeah. Well, I know in our school, you know, I have what I call my dozen. There's always a dozen parents in every school that will do all the work. And then you have the large parent body, which really just wants to drop off and pick up because they've got their own stuff going on in their lives. And then you have a small percentage that can grow into a large percentage of complainers if you don't tackle it or get it head on. But the best defense is really a great offense. So um, again, we use this app. It's so easy because I run my school on my cell phone. And on that app, I can just, you know, on playground, I'll just go and make an announcement to the whole school and tell them what's happening every day. Or, you know, uh, the other day I needed people to come into the kitchen. We had the men's group was supposed to make latkes and it fell apart. And I said, SOS, I need people in the kitchen tomorrow. I had 12, 12 people in the kitchen, um, you know, making latkes. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, I think it's truly amazing what you're doing. And I really hope that your model can be spread throughout, <laughs> yeah, throughout the country. So how can people get in touch with you or hear more about what you do? Um, you can call me. I'm always available by cell phone, 310-980-8629. There's no message on my cell. So if I'm available, I'll talk. Otherwise you can text. And my email is Tamar, T-A-M-A-R dot Andrews at A-J-U dot E-D-U. Okay, great. I hope that people will reach out. And anytime. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I wish you continued success. Happy New Year. Sure. What you're doing is so important. Thanks, my love. Bye, Naima. Thank you.